You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. When you found your place, we're going to read together the first 18 verses, this entire Good Shepherd discourse of John 10. John 10, beginning of verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and they and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them. They did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank You that You are the Good Shepherd, that You are our Shepherd, and that we are the sheep of Your pasture. There is true security and blessing in that, and we are grateful for that. And we thank You for the chance to look at this portion of Your Word, which speaks so much about what Jesus Christ has done for us and continues to do for us and in us, because we are Yours and we belong to You. So as your people, we pray that you would give to us illumination and understanding in your word. Send your spirit to be our teacher, and may your word be our guide, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there has been, since the early days of the Christian church, since the days of Pentecost, a constant, clear, and present danger of false teachers to God's people. It was a danger that existed actually before Pentecost to God's people in the Old Testament, to the Jews and the nation of Israel, It is a constant danger, one which we are called to be constantly vigilant in observing and guarding against and to be warned about. And we always need to know who the false teachers are and what the marks of a false teacher are. There are, it is amazing actually to see in in the New Testament how much is written just to address the issue of false teachers and false teaching in the church. There are whole books of the New Testament that are written just to describe the false teacher just to give us the marks and the characteristics of a wolf. Books like Second Peter and Jude do that. Then there are entire books of the New Testament, not just passages, but books of the New Testament, that were written to counter false doctrine, 
to expose false doctrine as false doctrine, and then to compare it to true doctrine and to put forth in its place the truth. Books like Colossians and Galatians and 1 John, which were all written to different early church heresies to address that issue. Then we have Paul naming certain false teachers in his own day, Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy. Then in 2 Timothy, Paul names Alexander the coppersmith. Now, maybe that was the same Alexander that was in cahoots with Hymenaeus in the first epistle. Maybe it was a different Alexander. But we have the Apostle Paul naming people and warning Timothy and Titus, naming the men and saying, be careful of these men, watch out for these men. These men have made shipwreck of the faith through their false teachings. I find it interesting because I've had this conversation, maybe you have too. I've asked Christians, because you start to talk about false teachers in the church today, and pretty soon that people get sort of their their cackles up, they're ruffled, they get their feathers ruffled at the thought that you might be naming people in the church today or identifying false teachers today. And so I will ask the question, this is the conversation I've had. Do you believe that as the New Testament predicts that there are false teachers in the church today? Oh, absolutely. Can you name them? Just name one. And the silence is more awkward than that one. And longer, they can't name them. They believe that they exist, but they don't want to name them. And the only heresy in the church today is identifying heresy. You want to be called a heretic? Identify heretics, and people will reject you. It's a clear and present danger, not only in the church today. Paul warned in, in Acts chapter 20. Let me give you a couple of passages. Acts 20, be on guard for yourselves. This is addressed to elders, pastors of the church in Ephesus. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Paul warned them, men will come in from the outside and men will rise up from amongst yourself, speaking perverse things. And you know what happened in the church of Ephesus? The identical thing that Paul warned those elders about happened in Ephesus. So that a few years later, after he got out of his first imprisonment, he had to send Timothy to Ephesus to appoint elders and to straighten out the things that were wrong in the church at Ephesus. To refute those false teachers, to identify them. And that's when he warned them about Hymenaeus and Alexander. One wonders if in Acts 20, Paul had in the back of his mind Hymenaeus and Alexander. For just a few years later, they would wreak destruction on the church in Ephesus. And then Second Peter, which we read at the beginning of our service. Second Peter, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3. The false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter says there were false teachers among the people, false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. And Peter there is going back to the Old Testament, and he's saying, remember, among the people of God in the Old Testament, there were false prophets. Do you remember some of them? They would prophesy, no, no, peace, peace, peace and safety, when there was no peace and there was no safety. Jeremiah ran up against the false prophets. There were false prophets who advised the kings and led the people astray after the way of Balaam and Baal and into idol worship and said that God was giving them messages and they came to speak God's word to the people and they led the people away after other gods and taught them false doctrines, doctrines of demons. And by them, the way of truth was was maligned and blasphemed. That was the Old Testament 
condition. And all the way through the prophets, you have these warnings about false teachers and false preachers and false prophets and false shepherds, men who gain access to the flock of God and use them to and exploit them for their own benefit and their own commerce. Those prophets or those warnings were in the Old Testament as well. So it was in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament, and it existed in the days of Jesus. In fact, Jesus identifies these false leaders, false prophets and teachers, as robbers and thieves in John chapter 10. And that's where we're at. And I bring all of that up just to remind you that John chapter 10, the parable, not the parable, that the, the uh, discourse, that's what I was looking for, sorry, the discourse of the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd discourse, was not addressed to sheep. Remember that. It is addressed to the Pharisees to the false teachers, the false shepherds of the nation of Israel. There is a lot in the Good Shepherd Discourse that is that is encouraging to us, that warms our heart, that gives us assurance, but that wasn't the primary aim of the discourse. The primary aim of the discourse was to contrast the true shepherd with the false shepherd. The implication being that the true shepherd is Jesus. He's sort of the prototype of the true shepherd, the ultimate true shepherd. There are other people that he commissions as shepherds under him over the flock of God, and those are to be contrasted with the false shepherds that are here identified in John chapter 10. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 and looking at these, uh, the difference, the distinction between the false shepherd, the false prophet, false teacher, you could use any of those terms, wolves or thieves or robbers, hirelings, and contrasting that with the characteristic of a true shepherd in these first two verses. Let me give you just a word real quick before we get into John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, there is... I don't know what we would call it, a word picture or a metaphor or an analogy. It is this picture of the shepherd and his sheep and a sheepfold and hirelings and those who are called to tend the sheep. That's sort of the picture of chapter 10. And that's what the discourse is really about. And all the lessons of the discourse are drawn out of that analogy. It's difficult to pin down what exactly this is in John 10. Some people would say it's a, it's a parable. I mean, do we call it a parable, an allegory, an analogy, a metaphor, a simile? What camp does this, this word picture fall into? I'm not comfortable with any category. In fact, I haven't found any ex, uh, a commentary that's really comfortable with any of those categories. Some people suggest that what we have here is a parable, just another one of Jesus' parables. But it doesn't quite read like a parable. You remember how the parables begin? There once was a man who had a vineyard, and he went away on a far journey, and he gave his servants command over the vineyard, and then he came... And, Starts off like that. Or there once was a man who went out to sow his seed. Or there once was a man who had two two boys and the one uh, said he would work and the other didn't say he would work. A story is a story, but this doesn't fit. It doesn't feel like a parable. So though it kind of has spiritual analogies or spiritual points, it, it doesn't. you can't really call it a parable. Well, do you call it an allegory? One commentary from the, uh, an older commentary from the early 1900s refers to this as an allegory. I'm not comfortable with the term allegory because allegory has certain features and this doesn't have all the features of an allegory. In fact, this doesn't have even a lot of the features of an allegory. An allegory is still a tale or a story that is told, like uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. That's an allegory where this thing represents this and this, and there's a one-to-one correspondence, but this really doesn't have the sense of a story to it. Would you call it a metaphor? I wouldn't call it a metaphor because, as you're going to see in a bit, there's sort of a mixing or a blending of metaphors in the passage. So it's not a parable. It's not an allegory. It's not a metaphor. But listen, we've got to call it something, right? In fact, one commentary said, John chapter 10 doesn't fit comfortably into any of these categories that we would use to identify it. And I say all of that just to tell you, I'm going to call it an analogy. I'm going to call it a word picture. I'm going to call it a metaphor. But if you come up to me afterwards and say, look, Jim, it wasn't, this is not strictly a metaphor. I'm going to agree with you. It's not strictly a metaphor, a parable, or an analogy, or anything. But it is sort of a word picture. 
And it's a word picture that Jesus is giving, and he is drawing certain lessons out of this. There's metaphors here. There's spiritual parallels here. There's analogies that are in here. So we're just going to call it a word picture or the Good Shepherd Discourse. So all of that said, let's jump into John chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Truly I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Now, since you and I do not live in an agrarian society where we have shepherds and sheep herders or sheep people all around us, we are not going to be as readily familiar with the details of this word picture as people would have been in the first century. In fact, I would venture to say that probably most people here, and I know there is one or two exceptions, most people here have not raised sheep. You don't have sheep in your backyard, right? But I do know there are people here who have raised sheep. Some of you are looking around wondering, who is that? Now, if you're thinking of some big, burly, young, strapping man that raises sheep in our congregation, you have entirely the wrong picture in your mind. If, on the other hand, you are thinking of a small, frail-looking, weak-looking woman, you're getting close, but don't let her... Don't let her appearance deceive you because she will wrestle you to the ground and shave you bald before you can say, bah. (laughs) But apart from those couple of folks, most of us have no idea of the picture that is behind everything that we're reading here. So let me flesh out the analogy for you. I will describe to you the picture that Jesus has in mind. Out in the villages and the surrounding areas in Israel in that day, you had shepherds who had little... uh, Uh, little flocks of sheep, some of them big, some of them small. And they would separate out through the day and they would lead their sheep out to pasture. And then uh, in each of these villages, there was a sheep fold. And all of the individual shepherds would bring their flock of sheep back to the sheep fold for the night. And this fold was an area sometimes off of the side of a house with high walls and one door, one door to the sheep fold. And the walls were very high and there's usually no roof. The walls protected the sheep through the night from all of the elements outside, and but most importantly, from predators. And so the shepherd would bring his sheep to the sheepfold, right up to the door of the sheepfold, and he would inspect each sheep as it passed into the fold. And as the sheep would approach, he would stop it with his staff, and he would physically inspect each sheep to make sure that it was there. He counted them, he knew those were his, and he would put them into the fold for the night. He did this with his entire flock. And all of the shepherds from the area would do this. They would gather around the sheepfolds, all of them would put all of their sheep together, they would shut the door, and inside would be a hired man, a hireling, a hired man whose job it was to guard over and watch all of the sheep in the sheepfold, the various flocks, for the night. That way one person had graveyard duty, He stayed up all night to watch them, make sure that nobody came, broke in the door, climbed over the wall, that none of the sheep were ravaged or attacked by wolves. His job, that one guy, was to watch the entire fold all night long. Now sometimes, a cave would serve the same purpose as a sheep fold. But the imagery here is not of a cave, it is of this walled enclosure with one door. In the morning, when the shepherd arrived at the sheep fold, the doorkeeper who was inside would hear the voice of the shepherd, recognize that it was a legitimate owner of the sheep, And he would open the door and the shepherd merely had to call to his sheep, not by name, though he had named them, but he would have to call to his sheep some call that his sheep recognized and all of his sheep would come to the door and exit and go out and pasture. Now, when when the shepherd came to the door of the sheep, all he had to do was call inside. All of his sheep would gather there. But listen, none of everybody else's sheep, none of them would come to that shepherd because their shepherds had their own voices and those sheep recognized their shepherds. So in that way, a shepherd could very quickly and very efficiently separate his sheep from a whole bunch of other sheep. 
All he had to do was call. They would all herd toward the door. They would come out. He would count them, make sure he had all of them. And he would wander off to pasture his sheep in the green meadows and along the brooks and the water uh, throughout the course of the day. And then at night, he would return and put them all back into the fold again. That was the job of a shepherd. Now, even as I describe that analogy to you, you are hearing in your mind the wording of the discourse, aren't you? I call my sheep by name. They hear my voice. They do not recognize the voice of strangers. I come to the door. That's the analogy. Now look at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Now everybody would recognize that. Now let me give you sort of a modern day parallel or analogy. I want you to imagine that you're driving through a crowded neighborhood at about midnight, and it's all still, and there's a few lamps on and lights and everything. And as you're driving by one particular house, you see two guys off to the side of the house, not by the front door, but off to the side of the house. And one guy is prying open the window, and he gets the window open, and the other guy grabs him by the feet and helps him up through the window. What do you assume? Two guys who got locked out of their own house, right, and couldn't find the key? Now, what is your first assumption? It's a breaking and entering, right? That's your first assumption, because you assume that if this is the legitimate owner of the home and the legitimate owner of all the things in the home, that he would have a key and he wouldn't be going through a window. He would be going through the front door. And if he had been locked out, he would have found some other way that he could have got in, maybe through the combination to the garage uh, up-y-down thing or some other way of getting in in a legitimate fashion. But since he, he's not coming in that way, you assume, since he's coming in in a way that pretty suspicious, he is not the legitimate owner of everything in the home. And he is gaining access to that for his own means. Now, that's a modern day analogy. So I want you to imagine that you're driving through first century Palestine or riding your camel through first century Palestine. And you see a sheep fold and you see a couple of guys stacking up bales of hay outside the sheep fold in the middle of the night. And they're climbing up on those bales of hay, lifting each other up over the wall into the fold of the sheep. What do you assume? They are thieves and they are robbers. You see, if they were the legitimate shepherds of the sheep and they had a right to those sheep because they belonged to them, They wouldn't be going up some other way. Instead, they would be approaching the door of the sheepfold and they would be calling to the doorkeeper who would open the door and they would call and their sheep would come out because they have legitimate rights and legitimate access to those sheep. That's the analogy that Jesus is drawing. Now, there are in in this picture, there are a bunch of features that we wonder, okay, which one of these features is a spiritual parallel or has a spiritual uh, symbolism and which one of them doesn't? There are obviously thieves and robbers here. There is the sheepfold, there is the door, there is the shepherd, and there is the sheep. Laying aside the issue of the shepherd and the sheep for right now, let's ask ourselves, what is the door to the sheep? What is it supposed to, or sheepfold? What is it supposed to represent? And who are these thieves and the robbers? Who are the thieves and the robbers? So let's begin first with what is the door? What does the door represent? It's not described here, but later on in verse 6, we find out we have to jump a little bit out of the text that we're looking at. In verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, that is the Pharisees mentioned in verse 40 of chapter 9, he spoke it to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been setting. Why? Because they're spiritually blind. They have no ability to understand truth. And he has spoken to them in a word picture, an analogy, a metaphor, whatever you want to call it, and it goes right over their heads. They don't even get what he's saying. They recognize, of course, the picture. They're familiar with folds and sheeps and this whole process, but they don't understand what he's aiming at. What's the point of this? They don't get that. So verse 7, Jesus has to lay it out for them and explain it to them. Verse 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Now there Jesus is saying in the analogy that I just gave you, I am the door. But in the analogy that he just gave us, he is also what? He's the shepherd. 
Because that's what he says later on. I am the door and I am the good shepherd. So in the analogy that we have, this word picture that we have, the door, which represents passage to security at night when dangers are present, and pasture during the day when we need to eat and drink, that door is the Lord Jesus Christ for His sheep. So anybody who wants to have security at night has to enter through the door. You want security? You've got to come through the door. You want pasture? You have to exit the door. Jesus says, I am the door. But He's also the shepherd. And this is this is where there's kind of a blending of metaphors. It's not really strictly a metaphor, an allegory, because we have Jesus playing multiple roles in this picture that He's giving to us. He is the door. He is also the shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd, who gives His life for the sheep. So He's playing both roles. And this should remind us, friends, that there is no single analogy that quite captures all that Jesus is. Do you realize that? That's why He says, I am the Word. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the good shepherd. All of these things capture some element of who Jesus is. So in this analogy, he's, He is more than one thing when it comes to, uh, as pertains to the protection and the provision for His flock. So that's the, that's the analogy there. So who are the thieves and the robbers then? If the door is Jesus, who are the thieves and the robbers? Who do you think that they are? They're in 9, verse 40. Chapter 9, verse 40. The Pharisees. That's who they are. The self-appointed religious leaders of the nation. The men who exploited God's flock for their own gain. These are the thieves and the robbers that Jesus has in mind. That's who this whole analogy is aimed at. That's who the whole metaphor is intended to address. Is to call them thieves and robbers. Now interestingly, the term thief and robber, they're not exact synonyms. They're, they're close in meaning, but there's two distinct words that are, Jesus uses there. The word thief was a word used of somebody who was intent on taking somebody else's property. The word robber was a word that was used of somebody who would use violence to take somebody else's property. Now there is a difference, and you can tell the difference in the way John uses these two words later on in his gospel because he calls two different men, one a thief and one a robber. Now listen to this. In John chapter 12, just during the week before Jesus was crucified, you remember the woman who came in and broke the very expensive uh, vial of oil and anointed Jesus' feet for burial? And Judas took offense to this. And he said, this could have been sold and all of the money could have been given to the the poor. And he feigned this righteous indignation. It wasn't righteous indignation. It it was because, John says, in John chapter 12, verse 6, it was because not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. A thief is somebody that uh, Judas was. Judas was a sneak thief. He had the treasury, the box, the money box, and money would go in, and while he was counting it up and adding it, a little bit went in Judas' pocket every once in a while. He was a sneak thief. Didn't do anybody any violence, didn't do anybody any harm, but he was a thief. John uses the word thief to describe Judas. John uses the word robber to describe another man in John chapter 18, verse 40. So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas was a violent man who not only had intention of taking what did not belong to him, but would use violence to do so. So a thief is like a sneak thief, somebody who just takes it, he swipes it, nobody notices, kind of under the radar. Then there are robbers who through violence to somebody else take what does not belong to them. The Pharisees are both thieves and robbers. Some of the Pharisees were very quiet about it. Some of the Pharisees simply took what they got and got what they took and and enjoyed it and was very quiet about it. Others of them did violence to people in order to take what did not belong to them. You can think Caiaphas and Annas, the two men who had Jesus crucified and had the trial. These are men who were willing to kill Jesus, kill his disciples, and kill Lazarus in order to keep what did not belong to them. 
Some of the Pharisees were like Nicodemus. They simply enjoyed the position that they had, but are not necessarily men who were known for their violence and for their aggression. So who are the thieves and the robbers? They are the Pharisees. Now here's the next question. What does it mean to climb up some other way? Notice that in verse 1. I think that that is intentionally ambiguous. Intentionally ambiguous. They just climb up some way that is not the door. In other words, you have the narrow door. A thief and a robber gains access to the flock any way except coming through that door. Any way. It doesn't matter what it is. The, the motives of men, the means that men use to gain access to the flock of God are as many as the men. This happens and manifests itself in thousands of ways in the church over the course of church history. Men who use illegitimate means and illegitimate ways, and they are varied and they are multiplied by the thousands to gain access or to exercise authority over the flock of God. What did it look like for the Pharisees to do this? These were men. This is what it looked like for the Pharisees. These were men who rejected the door. Now, if Jesus is the door and the thieves and the robbers are the Pharisees, what is the Pharisees' attitude toward the door? They want nothing to do with the door. They rejected the door. All of the door's claims to be the way, the truth, and the life, to be the Son of God, to be the means of forgiveness, the bread of life, the light of the world, all of that, they rejected it. In fact, these thieves and their robbers did not bring men to and through the door into the security of the sheep or draw men out the door into pasture. These thieves and robbers climbed up any other way that they could and actually did everything that they could to distract men and to divert men away from the door. So they called Jesus a deceiver, a liar, a false teacher, a blasphemer, a demon-possessed man, an imposter. They named, they labeled him all of those things for the purpose of keeping people away from the door. That's how the Pharisees did it. And they gained access to the church or to the people of God, to the flock of God, not only by rejecting the door when the door appeared and claimed to be who he was claiming to be, but they also did this by exploiting the people for their own benefit. The Pharisees were men who loved the praise of men. They loved glory. They loved to be the people up front. They loved to be recognized for who they were. So they, who they were, so they wore their phylacteries and their garments long and their robes, and they would give the loud prayers and anoint their face when they were fasting. They wanted people to see them and to respect them and to love them. That was the Pharisees. It was all for the Pharisee. It was all about who he was, not about bringing people to or pointing people to the door, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. They rejected the door. They blasphemed the door, and they did everything they could to keep people away from the door, and instead draw attention only to themselves. They had power over the people. And listen, they also used to get a lot of money for doing what they did. Do you remember that? Remember back in John chapter 2, the whole thing that went on in the temple with the, with the people, and sacrifices? That was a racket, wasn't it? That was a racket. Money changing and selling animals, that was a racket that they had going. And every feast, every festival, everything that happened in the temple they would glean the money from it. It was a position of power, a position of money, and they used it to fleece the people. They kept the people under oppression. They kept the people under the under the darkness of false doctrine because they added to the law and to the commandments of Moses all of the traditions of men and the legislation, the requirements, and all the rabbinical teachings. All of that was added. People were in complete and total darkness, and the true undefiled religion of their God, these Pharisees had so blasphemed and so corrupted that people could not even see or hear the truth from them. And so they did violence to people's souls. They stole from them the joy of the Sabbath. They stole from them the joy of the festivals. They stole from them their money. They stole from them their very own spiritual lives by keeping the people blinded and in darkness. These men are thieves and they are robbers. That's who the Pharisees were. So Jesus is the door. The Pharisees are the thieves and the robbers. And coming up some other way means coming up any way into the fold except through and by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the next question. Actually, this is quickly an observation. 
I want you to notice from this passage that it is sometimes appropriate to speak harshly of men and women like this. It is appropriate to speak harshly of men and women who exploit the people of God like these Pharisees did. Jesus didn't come to the Pharisees and say, you know what, we got a lot in common, and we really ought to focus on our common ground. We want to focus on all the ways in which we agree with each other, and we have a lot of agreement. You like Moses, I like Moses. You like Abraham, I like Abraham. You're very zealous, you fast, you pray, you give your tithes and your alms and all that. You're, we, ought, we ought to find our common ground and our agreement and get along and accomplish a lot of things for the nation. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do that at all. It wasn't about common ground for him. It was about identifying these men for what they were, thieves and robbers who fleeced the people of God. Wicked and corrupt men. And though Jesus doesn't come outright and say, you are thieves and robbers, he does give them an analogy where the point is very clear. You are thieves and robbers. And that was what he was addressing to them, harsh, harsh language. It's appropriate to do that. And as I said earlier, the only heresy today is identifying heretics. Point out a heresy and you will quickly find yourself ostracized because people don't want to hear that there's true and that there's false. There's right and that there is wrong. There's true shepherds. And there are false shepherds. So it's appropriate to speak harshly. Now, we've looked at what it looks like in the Pharisees' world in the days of Jesus for them to be thieves and robbers. Are there thieves and robbers among us today? Are there thieves and robbers in the church today? There certainly are. There are men who think it is their, uh, who think that their claim to ministry is the money. And that's their motive for ministry. Some people get into ministry just because they're motivated by the money. These are men like Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen. And these are men like Creflo Dollar. I mean, look, his last name is Dollar. That should be a hint. Creflo Dollar. Uh, R.W. Schombach. Uh, the list goes on. Joyce Meyer of all these false teachers in the Word Faith Movement who, listen, they exploit the flock of God. They rob poor people. They rob desperate people. They rob sick people for the purpose of exploiting them by their false doctrines and their doctrines of demons. Promising them things that God never promises them. And this is the face of modern Christianity around the world. The face of modern Christianity is not John MacArthur as much as we might wish it were. The face of modern Christianity today is Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen. That's the face of the Christian church. And the world looks at it and says, these are your leaders? These are Christians? No wonder we're a laughing stock in the world. Because these are the people that are recognized by leaders. The world recognizes them as a fraud. And the church, the Christians... Just sit and listen to it. Motivated by their money. Some men get into ministry. Some shepherds get into ministry. And they are motivated by laziness. Because being a pastor can be really easy. You play a few rounds of golf. You meet for coffee. You play a few rounds of golf. You meet for lunch. You play a few rounds of golf. You read some novel. You play a few rounds of golf. And some people think that's all it takes to be president. Pastor. Sorry, pastor. That's all it takes to be pastor is just to do that. So they're motivated by laziness. Some men are motivated by glory. They like to be in front of people. They want other people to hear them. They want other people to look up to them. They want people coming to them for answers. They want people asking them questions. They want to be respected. They want to be in the limelight. That's what a false shepherd does. The motives are as many as the men. The motives are as many as the false teachers. False teachers abound, and everyone has his own unique combination of wicked and corrupt motives. But listen, they all share this one thing in common. They are not interested in the least in bringing men to or through the Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing they want to do is enter by the right way and gain access to the sheep that way. The last thing that they want to do is really be a faithful servant of Christ who honors Him because they make little of Jesus. The thieves and the robbers today are not interested in exalting Christ. Their messages aren't about the Lord Jesus and, and unfolding His glory for the people of God. 
Their messages are about what they think and a few verses that they can find in Scripture that support what they want to pull out of the Bible. It's not about teaching people the Scripture verse by verse, passage by passage, all the way through a book so that people understand the text of Scripture. It's not about that for them. They make little of Jesus because they want their sermons to be remembered not by how much we learned about Christ and His Word, but they want their sermons to be remembered by how hip and relevant they were, the video we played on the screen, or how well that drama tied into it, or, or my skinny jeans, or my soul patch, or my nice haircut, or my cultural references, or the band, or the music, or a thousand other things. And all of those things serve to veil Christ, not to make Him known. In fact, today, the thieves and the robbers hide the Lord Jesus Christ beyond the veil, behind the veil of not offending people with the Gospel. And that's how they keep people away from the door, thinking if we can get them to climb up into the sheepfold some other way and not take them through that very offensive door, which is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we can get them up that way, we can get them in. Sort of bait and switch, trick them in. Get them in somehow. And then we'll, we'll just slowly pour on the Christian language to them. And over the course of 50 years, they might be exposed to some doctrine. That's how the thieves and robbers do it today. Now, am I suggesting to you that this church and the leadership of this church is the only true shepherds? Not at all. Not in the least. There are a multitude of men, a lot of men in our own community, in our communities around the world, who are godly men who strive and labor to bring people to and through the Lord Jesus Christ. They're godly faithful men. And uh, we should pray for them. We should thank them. I, I am saying this, folks that the number of thieves and robbers are many in the church today. And that is only because it is so easy to exploit people in a land where there is no cost to being a Christian. They can simply exploit people. And they do it all the time. And they're not interested in making much of Christ. They're interested in making much of themselves. And it's amazing. Some Christians will sit under teaching like that or under these men for years, and they'll walk away Sunday after Sunday saying, I, I don't know what it is. But that, why is it that I go to church and I feel that everything about the church is about me or about him or about this or about that, but not about Jesus? See, that creates a hunger in the heart of the people of God, where the people of God say, I want to see my Savior. Now, those are the marks of a false shepherd. By contrast, the true shepherd, verse 2, and this won't take us nearly as long because all we're simply doing is is contrasting the false shepherd now, or the true shepherd or the false shepherd. So think in this way. The true shepherd is everything that the false shepherd is not, and the false shepherd is everything that the true shepherd is not. Did I get that right? If I didn't get that right, you can at least filter it and translate it in your mind, and you'll get it. Verse 2, He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. How do you know the true shepherd of the sheep? Well, he is the one who doesn't have to go up some other way. He walks right up to the door of the sheepfold, and he calls up and says, I'm here to pick up my sheep. And the doorkeeper opens the door and he calls his sheep. They recognize his voice. They lift up their heads and they walk with the shepherd and they go out to pasture. That is the mark of a true shepherd. No illegitimate access. He, he, he doesn't think twice of bringing people to or through Christ. He doesn't think twice of simply exalting him and bringing people to that door so that they can see and enter in legitimately through the true gospel, the right way, the true means of grace. That is what a true shepherd does. The false shepherd, not interested in the door. We've got other things, other agendas, other ideas, other ways, other means. A true shepherd of the sheep just simply approaches the door and says, bring me my sheep. And he calls them and they come. How simple is that? How beautiful is that, right? And you're probably getting in your mind in verse 2 that Jesus is not 
so much describing himself in the first two verses. Do you notice that? He's not saying, I am this shepherd who approaches the door. He's not saying that. But he is contrasting false shepherds with true shepherds so that we might see what a true shepherd is, that he is somebody who owns the sheep, has legitimate access to the sheep, is not interested in deceiving people, but is interested in entering and exiting and doing everything the right way. This is what a true shepherd is. And then we are to extrapolate from that. Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep. So he is in every way just like a true shepherd. He has legitimate access to the sheep. Why? Because the Father gave him the sheep. Do you want to exhibit number one? Exhibit number one is the man born blind. Here was the man born blind who had come to Jesus. He had heard the voice of Jesus. He had come out to follow Jesus, called himself a follower of Christ. He has entered through the door, into the door. He's following Jesus out to pasture. Jesus is the shepherd. The man born blind is the sheep. And what do the Pharisees do to him? They kick him out of the synagogue. They kick him out of the synagogue. They are going to, they, if they cannot control him and oppress him and use him like they did all of the other sheep, then they're not interested in having anything to do with him. But the true shepherd comes up. He knows his own, the man born blind. He calls them by name. And the man born blind now has entered into the kingdom through the, day, through the door, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exhibit one. Here's the, here's the glorious thing that you and I are to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the true shepherd. He is the sincere shepherd. He is in no way false. He in no way, in any of his dealings with you and I, in no way does he ever aim to do us ill or harm. Never. No matter what happens in your life, the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ is never to do you harm, always to do you good. Now that may mean that for a period of time he has to take the crook of his rod and thump you a few times and get your attention, or to examine you, or to feed you, or to lead you, or to discipline you, or to bring suffering. But listen, the intention of the true Savior, the true Shepherd, is never to do his people harm. Never. Always good. The false shepherd, he never aims for the good of the people. He always aims for the good of himself. The true shepherd always aims for the good of the sheep, even to the point of laying down his life for the sheep, which is what Jesus ultimately did. So that is the sincere shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sincere or the true shepherd. Let's pray together. Praise him. Our Father, we are grateful that you have appointed for us such a faithful shepherd for your sheep. We thank you, as your word says, that you, our Father, gave us to your Son in eternity past to be the object for which he would die, to be the flock for which he would give his life, and that he, having done that, has saved us and now secured us for your eternal glory. Thank you that there is nothing that we can do to ever leave your fold. There is nothing that can ever be done to us that will bump us out of, push us from, or cause us to be taken or snatched from the fold that is yours. We thank you for such a wonderful shepherd who always aims to do us good. And we thank you that you have given us to him. Of all of the people that we could follow, of all of the lights that we could follow after, we are thankful that you have opened our eyes to follow the true light. And that is all a work of your grace. We pray that you would confirm these things in our hearts and give us an appreciation, a love, and affection for Christ, who is our Lord and our shepherd in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.